The effective ending of the book of Revelation is at verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 5, where it says, There shall be no night there, uh, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's the effective end of the revealing of things. But then in the remaining verses, uh, verses six, verses that follow that, six through the end of the chapter, there are admonitions and there's a bit of backtracking and then going forward with exhortations. So for example, in uh, verse 6, he says, these words are faithful and true. That's like when Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Although again, this is an angel speaking to him. You'll remember that in the very first part of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we address the question of knowing the day of the Lord's return. And you will remember when Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, he said, no man knows the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. So man didn't know, the Son didn't know, the angels didn't know, uh, only the Father, the day of the Lord's return. But the book of Revelation begins with an answer to that question where it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants that which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, that's a necessary address, and it comes right at the very front, because when Jesus was saying in Matthew 24, no man knows the day nor the hour, etc., Jesus, and not even the Son, Jesus was in the form yet of man. And uh, he had not been resurrected from the dead at that point. Once he, is, once he was raised from the dead, he had fulfilled all the requirements of the pre-creation covenant, the Lamb being slain from the foundations of the world. And according to Peter in, the, in his message on the day of Pentecost, when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the time of the full vesting of the titles Lord and Christ. Now, he had, he had become obedient by the things he suffered and therefore became the perfect example before he was crucified. But after he was crucified, he's clothed with the authority of, of 
the full representation of God in all creation. And from that position of having all authority, he could then display without question all of the brightness and the glory of God Himself that He came into creation to display. You'll remember that when in one of the earlier messages we spoke about what God meant when He said, let there be light. Because in, in, of course in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to appear in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure, it goes on to say, in earthen vessels. So the full revelation of who God is and indeed the very purpose of creation itself refers to the very first thing God said as He said, as He established creation, when He said, let there be light. We understand that He was, He had in mind with particularity the revealing of God in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, He was not engaging in hyperboles. He was speaking to the very essence of God's intent, the very heart of what God meant when He said, let there be light. Which again was not not uniquely related to the creation of the sun, the moon and the stars because those would come later in creation, but rather instead that God meant to be disclosed darkness being on the surface of the deep and the deep being the very person of God. God when He said, let there be light, meant to remove the covering, the veil that kept Him from being seen and understood through Christ. In type and shadow, the veil continued to be such such representations as when God came down in a thick dark cloud on uh, on Mount Sinai or when God established a thick veil between, in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the outer uh, portions of the sanctuary. Christ was the veil upon the face of God uh, or rather darkness on the face of God meant that who God was, was not revealed until, until the, the, knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God was pulled back so that God Himself could be seen in all of His grandeur, all of His glory, His intricacies, His wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, power, uh, His rule, all of those things could be seen in and through the person of Christ. For the fullness of the Godhead was carried in the person of Christ to be revealed in the person of Christ. 
So now in the book of Revelation, as we conclude the study of it, the book of Revelation is very much the summary of everything that is in the scriptures. All of the grand themes of scripture and many of the minor themes of scripture or lesser themes of scripture are summarized in the book of Revelation. And as is true of things reaching their apogees when God is involved, they all end up being a spiritual reality, having been preceded by a material rendition of the same things. So from glory to glory is how things matriculate from the basic appearing within the natural world and the appearing as physical representations to where they become uh, revealed, where all the natural things being subsumed in a spiritual reality are then revealed in the fullness spiritually. That is why it is really folly to look back to the law for illumination on spiritual things, for example. Because the law is but the shadow, the law is the type, the law is the deals and traffics in the physical representations of things and it is, it is evident and clear by the fact that people still live under the law, uh, still observe the law, do so without the revelation of Christ. When you have the revelation of Christ, then the law makes sense only as the natural is the stepping stone for understanding the spiritual. It's not the other way around. That is why it's only in the Spirit of God may we properly understand the person of Christ. That's why Jesus said, I'm going away and I will send you the Holy Spirit who, when He comes, will take of what belongs to Me and reveal it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, so the Spirit will take what is Mine and will distribute it to you. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation is the absolute prerequisite for understanding Scripture. You cannot, let me be unequivocal, let me be forthright and dogmatic, you cannot understand the Scriptures through the rational mind. So everyone who says God wrote the Bible through the Holy Spirit gave us a rational mind to understand it and took off. So it's up to us to understand. They will walk in darkness as long as they continue to hold to that view. And the mysteries of the scriptures will remain mysteries. So whenever you hear people telling you uh, when they're cornered and cannot explain the scriptures to you, and they say, well, it's a mystery. 
To them it's a mystery. And there are certain things that God will retain, but only, but not arbitrarily. God retains things in, in accordance with the times of the revealing of those things. But if year after year, epoch after epoch, the answer is always the same, that the thing is a mystery, then it means that their understanding is carnal. And for persons of a carnal understanding attempting to understand God, they revel in the law, they revel in things being carnal and natural. And they hope by that to morph into a position of righteousness with God, based upon, of course, the doing of the thing that they believe God wants you to do. That, you see, establishes a self-righteous bargaining posture with God. The book of Revelation, as it comes to an end, unpacks everything that has been spoken from Genesis onward. So it is heavy with summaries, but these summaries, for the most part, these summaries, I I would go as far as to say these summaries in their entirety are spiritual understandings, not conjectures. When I say spiritual understanding, I do not mean conjecture. I mean they speak to the final and ultimate conditions of the human spirit vis-à-vis God. The human spirit is in fact what the human person is. The human body is his housing. The human soul is the ability to interact, the human's ability to interact with creation. But the human spirit, being the essence of personhood, is the beneficial heir of all of the promises of God. So, understandably, the human body is destined for decay, only to be replaced eventually with a spiritual body capable of housing and and entertaining the human spirit. The human as the full person, the final person, is a spirit clothed upon by a spiritual form and that spirit is known as the Son of God and that spirit is assembled to the person of Christ. In our bodies, like Jesus, when He was here on the earth, in our bodies we carry the duality of nature. That is to say, we carry the nature of being spirit and the nature of being flesh. So we are both son of men, sons of men, and sons of God. But it hardly requires any uh, 
speculation or conjecture to see that the preeminent order of being is that of being sons of God. And even the flesh, in the Son of God who is mature, the flesh then bows to, all the issues of the flesh bow to the superseding relevance of all of the conditions of being, us being spirit. When we speak of spirit, we are by definition speaking of the fullness of personhood, the completeness of being. So the goal is not for the spirit of man to be subservient to the flesh of man or no more than the spirit, spiritual things should be subservient to natural things. It is that within the venue of natural things, of this created world and all of its effects, that we, are, we live in the reality of being spiritual beings. Now, such a thing is not possible unless and until the mind is renewed. So the Spirit of God renews the mind of the, humans, of the human being so that the mind that is in the, in the soul of the human bows to the mind that is within the spirit of the human and human, the human has access to the very thoughts of God and the perceptions of God to which then we bow in the soul and execute within the body. The book of Revelation shows that final stage where we've become altogether spirit. It ends with that summary. This is one of the great summaries of the book and it shows the progression from man being formed out of the dust of the ground to and receiving from God the impartation of a spirit to the very end of the matter when the resurrected man is clothed upon with a spiritual form and enjoys the presence of God in an indwelling way without any intermediate or intervening circumstances such as living again in a natural world. Even the world changes. Heavens and earth are transformed into spiritual realities. But again, spiritual realities are not whimsical or nor are they speculative. They're just a different kind of reality, the superintending reality, the transcendent reality. I, I hope to emphasize this thought to the point where one understands that what we call reality, the natural world, is what God permits for now. But all around surrounding this reality and influencing it in every conceivable way is a spiritual reality 
that is from time to time breaking in upon this natural order. And as this happens, any time spiritual reality breaks in upon the natural reality, it becomes the dominant reality. You know, the story of Jesus and and the disciples when Jesus came to them walking on the water. Two realities side by side. The disciples in the boat in a storm, Jesus walking on the water, and then when these two parallel realities coincide, the dominant reality becomes the spiritual. So, when Jesus walking along beside his disciples in the boat, they're in panic. He is not. They're rowing with all their might. He's walking peacefully, calmly on the surface of the water. Two realities side by side. Then he gets into the boat with them, porting the reality in which he is into their sphere, into their boat. Does he then get on the oars, on one of the oars and begins to row? No. Does he ask for a bucket so he could bail water out of the boat? Uh, Their evident panic that the boat would swamp? No. No. His reality suspends, supersedes, transcends the reality of his disciples. And so the statement, suddenly they were at the land where they were going, speaks to the preeminence of spiritual reality over natural circumstance. It is in the nature of unregenerate man and it is also in the nature of immature believers to hold to the reality that can be detected by the five senses. And, And it is like humans, even sons of God in in their immaturity, it is like them to assert the reality of their five senses and to reason to conclusions based upon the impulses they may take in through their five senses. But the book of Revelation, coming as it does, as the finality of all scripture, the last testament of the Apostle John, speaking to and speaking in summary of all that the scriptures speak of, from the inception in Genesis and speaking about the creation, all the way through when man is only a spirit, no longer in any fashion subject to decay or destruction or non-existence. The summary of that lifts us up, not to the heavens, but into the eternal, 
which, is, which contains for now both heaven and earth. But when heaven has emptied itself out of all that is valuable and valuably contained in heaven now and empties it out into the earth which upgrades the earth because the earth is actually in creation, the earth is, though it's less than, it entertains the purposes of God more thoroughly than heaven was ever intended to do. Heaven was more the warehouse, the storage for all the things that were to come into the earth. So, and the intent of God in this creation is when He brings the matters out of heaven into the earth, all matters coming out of heaven into the earth upgrades the earth, upgrades the earth ultimately to a greater relevance than heaven itself. It's a hard thing to imagine since all religion, all Christian religion emphasizes the glory of going to heaven when you die. Well, as compared to the torments of the earth, yes, but as compared to the eternal purposes of God, no, no. The earth was always what God meant to be the meeting place of the eternal and the natural, to transform the natural into the spiritual and therefore permanently establish the eternal beyond the natural. It was not possible for God to work out His plan by starting with the superior environment, by starting with the eternal. So He started with the lowest of all things, created things. But every increment of the eternal that invades the natural brings the reality of the eternal into the natural. Heaven, once created, remained what it was and remained to accommodate that intermediary position of hosting eternal things until the time came for those things to be deposited into the earth with the understanding that every such deposit brought not heaven into the earth but brought the eternal, the reality of God, the realm of God beyond heaven brought that into the earth. So for example, when Jesus died on the cross, what reality came when He died and was raised? What reality came into the earth? God's eternal plan that existed before God created the heavens and the earth. The contract, the covenant for the redemption of man was not executed in heaven and its realities did not govern heaven in as much as heaven didn't need to be governed 
by those realities. It upgraded the earth to accommodate the eternal intentions of God to have a son in His image and likeness. Now then, as I said, the book of Revelation is a continuing summary of how these things are fulfilled. When we get to verse 5, the final matter of light, the revealing of Christ in all His glory, is the bookend to the first declaration of God in the book of Genesis when He said, let there be light. There is no, there, uh, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lord God gives them light because the light of the sun or the light of a lamp is not particularly relevant to the existence of a human spirit. But the illumination of the nature of God is altogether relevant. This is both environment and food. This is shelter, protection, provision, identity, food. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In short, you see, the life of the spiritual man demands the sustenance that is wrapped up altogether in the light of God's reality. It feeds and sustains everything. But these shouldn't be such awe-inspiring thoughts. They are in practical fact but they shouldn't be so new to us because we've been told over and over and over again these very same things. For example, I am the light of the world. For example, if you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Men do not light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. You are children of the, of the day and not of the night. You walk in the light because you are born of the light. It is the light of God's nature, meaning when God's nature is revealed to you, it sustains every aspect of being. For now, that is veiled from our eyes to some degree 
and it's veiled almost entirely to our senses when we walk in the natural, when we walk in the five senses. But when we walk in the Spirit, even now clothed upon by flesh, we know the reality of man not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, because the nature of God Himself is an economy that sustains everything, spiritual and natural. We'll continue with our summary from the book of Revelation as we continue in this final series. I'm Sam Solon. We'll see you then. Bye for now.